Welcome to New Hope's Sermon of the Week. We truly hope you're blessed as you listen to this week's message. All right. All right. We're in for a treat here, so I'm going to make an introduction quick so we can get him up here. But uh, today we got the real privilege of hearing from Dr. Jonathan Welton, who is a member of our church. And just for those of you who may be newer, newer, um, you might not even realize, but the Welton Academy, which he runs, is a supernatural online Bible school. There's over a thousand people on, uh, that are part of that uh, worldwide. Uh, in October, we hosted a big summit here where a lot of them came and you know, we got poured into for three days and talked about uh, the five-fold ministry and all types of stuff. Jonathan's written a lot of books. How many has read a book here by Jonathan? Uh, raise your hand. Yeah, I see a lot of hands that have gone up. So this is good. How many know that having a good biblical foundation is very important in your walk so that we navigate well, you know, as we're going forward and we don't get tossed around here and there, but knowing the Word and knowing the Bible and knowing the heart behind the Father is so important in how we read, how we read the Bible. So I think the Welton Academy and Jonathan has been very, that's been so key of who he is and what he's done in the body of Christ. So um, so I want to just bring him on up here. Give him a warm welcome to John Welton. Thank you, Lord. Good morning. You guys still made it out, even in all this winter weather? <laughs> oh, what a crazy weekend, right? This was... This was nuts. Um, good morning. Let me say it again. Good morning. This is my last speaking of this year. I'm going to be silent for the rest of the year. No. Uh, <laughs> that sounds great. Um, actually, I, I have just finished 110 days of travel this year. Um, and that was, that was a small year. I actually have had as many as 150 days of travel in past years. So I've pulled it down to 110. I'm pulling it down more next year. But uh, love being home with you and my church family, my natural family, my, my kids. I just, I love being home. So this is, this is great to be able to come and share with you. And as, uh, as Steve and I have been talking about uh, this Sunday, one of the things that we were mentioning is that uh, we, we have so many new people, and there's, there's new people, there's people that are coming back that haven't been here in years. Um, there's been a real shift in, in uh, the body here in the last six months to a year even, and um, so some of what I'm going to do is a little bit of a refresher for some of us, and it might be actually new information for some others of us. So what I want to share with you, um, it's kind of... Oh, I, it's, it's hard to get this rolling because I've been thinking about how to share this exactly. And I was actually getting a little bit briefly nostalgic because I, the, the first time I shared here was almost exactly four years ago. It was right after the last election, like two or three weeks after the previous election. And uh, so I got up and I, I shared and I was a visitor and then... Um, uh, Tim and Jess and I, I think us, we went to Longhorn Steakhouse and we connected and I was just a guest speaker and 
we didn't know each other at all, and it was just a whole different experience, and it's really crazy to think of, of where it's gone from there. And, uh, you know, so from then until now, so much has happened. And uh, for many of you, how many of you have been in this, uh, a part of this body just for the last two years or less? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's a good little chunk there. Wow, you guys, that's amazing. So uh, for you, what I may share um, might be a little bit newer of a concept of, uh, that I want to bring to the surface. Uh, for those who don't know me real well, or maybe you just know me in passing uh, from, you know, coffee time or family time or whatnot, um, I'm Jonathan Welton. I'm Dr. Jonathan Welton. I earned a doctorate in theology at uh, 30 years old, so three years ago. Um, I was commissioned as an apostle by Harold Eberly and uh, Robert Muncy about two years ago. And so I've been operating in that grace, have been received in that grace internationally. And I am on the top 13 watch list on the internet for new apostles to watch out for. <laughs> it's on one of those anti-Holy Spirit websites. So, so that's how you know it's true. the only one on under 50 on the list so um, well so that's a little snapshot and it's it's been a big shift over the last few years when I first started here I was really operating and received and known uh, more from the school of the seers and really received in the body as a prophet and a prophet and a teacher and then as we started the school I kind of shifted more into teacher professor mode and I, I brought this up with me, too. This giant book, Understanding the Whole Bible, was actually created here, yeah. and so much in part, and it thanks to New Hope. Being able to film the classes here uh, from January 2014 to May 2014, uh, and then we transcribed it, then we edited it, then we edited it four more times, and then we created this book out of that course and i'm i'm so thankful that we're able to host things together and partner things together uh, this year in 2017 in october we're going to have another summit with danny silk here it's awesome. you should be excited yeah, about that right. uh, danny silk will be here bill vanderbush will be here and shara pradham who was a personal assistant to heidi baker for over five years and uh, so those, those three will be here in the summit, and this place is going to be packed out. And I'm just thrilled to be able to do this together. Um, in, in doing it together, uh, and that's kind of what I want to emphasize, is that one of the things that's so unique about this church that I want to tell you about yourself if you don't know it yet, is that this church has embraced some new things. This church has embraced, uh, one, it's really embraced what Bethel has brought into the body of Christ, which is an emphasis on the kingdom that's really good and really healthy. There's also been an embracing of what the Welton Academy has been bringing into the body, which is a focus on the new covenant. And so there's, there's lots of different types of churches. I, 
calculated um, maybe a month ago how many conferences I've sat in over the last uh, 10 plus years, and it's, it's been about 250 conferences that I've been in, um, more than 25 a year for 10 plus years. So I have seen a lot of different um, parts of the body of Christ and emphasis in the body of Christ. And there's whole uh, grace streams that focus on new creation, identity, and realities. And there's, there's glory streams, and they just want the, you know, lay the bam on you, and, and, and there's all that. And there's, there's so many different pieces and parts of the body. And, and uh, one of the things that's really brave about New Hope is that they're embracing something that is more... Hmm, is, is very different and unique and that people haven't seen it yet in the body. It's still at its very, very seed form. And so I want to present to you a little bit today what that is and what that looks like because it may not have made it to you yet, uh, even though you've been coming here and going, this place is really awesome, I love it, but I don't really get what, what's different. What are they doing different? Is it the structure? Is it that everybody loves each other? Like, what is different here? There's something different. And so I, I think I have a little bit of insight into that. One of the things is that we've embraced something called better covenant theology. And I will lay that out briefly. It sounds maybe a little more lofty for a Sunday morning, but I'll, I'll lay it out just briefly. Better covenant theology, or BCT. The leadership here has really embraced this concept, and it's a, it's a, a structure that goes behind a lot of our thinking, a lot of our teaching, a lot of the way that the church is run, the teams are run, how we interact with each other. And so it's a, it's a superstructure behind the scenes that is doing things that you may not realize. Like, for example, you look at the wall, and you look at the paint, and you look at the color, but most of the time you don't think about the framing behind the wall. But without the framing, you don't have a wall. So the paint is great, and that's what most of us think about when we look at walls. It's pretty in here, or it needs a new color paint, or whatever. I'm not talking about this room, but, but we think about that. We look at the surface. We don't think about the structure behind it, but it's so important what that structure is. Uh, in most places, there's more of a focus on revival. That's a big one. That's a big structure behind the walls that a lot of people are focused on. Revival, revival, revival. Let's worship, let's pray, let's get enough... Ah! Get enough mojo in this room, and then we'll heal some people, and we go home, and we had a nice revival this morning. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. If you agree, stare blankly. <laughs> Thank you. So agreeable. Excellent. Okay, so a lot of places, the emphasis, the focus is, ah, revival. And revival is amazing. You read about stories. You read about Charles Finney, especially. Here we are in Rochester, New York. And we have the privilege of, of what happens uh, in our history with Charles Finney here. Uh, if you don't know that story, from uh, 1830 to 1831, in a nine-month period, Charles Finney had 100,000 conversions. It was 90% of the population of upstate New York that participated. It was in the newspapers. They called it the burned-over district. Not burned out burned over because they said there was such a religious fervor hanging in the air that just coming in the region, you felt like there's fire in this area. The newspapers called it that. So revival's awesome. I love revival, the concept, the presence, the manifest presence. Yes. 
But there's another thing called reformation. And you also have to have reformation at times in the body also, because fivefold ministers, they equip the body of Christ. And the word equip there actually means to set a bone. It's like a chiropractor or like a doctor putting a broken bone back into place. Reformation is to form again. It's to put back into its proper form. And so many times we, we walk through church history, we get things that go off course and there's weird theologies and weird thinking that gets in or cultural stuff seeps in that's not a part of the kingdom thinking. And so we have to unteach and reteach and cleanse and sanitize and, and work things through again so that health comes back to the body. Yeah. So reformation is just as important as revival, but it looks and feels very different. See, the look and feel of revival is super exciting, and it's easy to get passionate about, and it's big, and it's in your face. Reformation usually is much more slow-growing and calmer and a little quieter, and then it has some bumps, and it has resistance, and people freak out, and people leave, and new people come, and, and reformation operates differently. And, and it really, the picture is kind of the difference between a revival is like a vegetable garden. You plant it in the spring, you're going to have food by fall, it's all going to be dead by winter. That's your typical revival concept. You will have vegetables the same year. Reformation is more like an orchard. You plant a couple seeds, and then you wait 20 years. Like, it's, it's that kind of slow growing. You look out there and go, well, I see a stick. Now I see a tree. It's getting a little, oh, it has leaves this year. That's good. And then next year you have like little tiny apples and you're like, that's good. And it grows more slowly. But Reformation, once it's actually grown up into something, now it can feed for generations and generations. So it has a really long-lasting effect. So there are places that are epicenters of revival. New Hope, if you haven't realized it yet, is an epicenter of reformation. I'm telling you not a declaration, not a faith statement. I'm telling you a fact that you may not realize. We are an epicenter of reformation. When we talk about reformation, the most classic story, of course, is Martin Luther. That was the great reformation, the 1517 uh, October 31st, he goes out dressed up as a monk. Okay, that was a joke. It's Halloween. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've watched some videos of me teaching, and I'm like, I say funny stuff, but I never wait long enough for anybody to laugh. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's that quiet feeling where you're like, hm, that was funny. Um, <laughs> Oh, well, honestly, he goes out on Halloween, 1517, which we are at 499 years from that historic moment. So we have a, a really exciting year coming up here. And he nails 95 theses to the door at the church at Wittenberg, Germany. And those 95 theses, what you would do if you were a professor is you'd take those and you'd nail them to the door and you're opening it up to public debate. You're opening it saying, if there's other priests or professors that want to argue this, 
I'm available. He's not trying to leave the Catholic Church. He's not coming against the Catholic Church. He's trying to address 95 problems that he's seen, and he's willing to debate and argue. Now, it's seen as a threat, and so he's persecuted very heavily, and he ends up outside the Catholic Church. And within 50 years, 50% of Germany is Lutheran. Huge transition. So it wasn't even his intention, though. <laughs> like, oops, I started a movement. <laughs> so uh, to put another, another picture, I've, I'll come back to the Reformation concept, but I've shared this before, the five realms. If you haven't heard this, I'll just do a quick review. But we have five realms in the spirit, in the supernatural. The first is the realm just called the world. This is the world system, where he says, love not the world, he's talking about here. Now, that can almost seem like a contradiction because there's other verses. God so loved the world, but this is talking about the world system, the secular humanism, a way of thinking, the philosophies of uh, the demonic mindset that is over here, the non-believer. Now, everybody starts here just in Adam, but at some point, if you come into Christ, yeah. now you step into the first, the second realm, and this one's called the church realm. Now, many people live in the church realm. They attend, they give, they get water baptized, they memorize some scripture, they take communion. Uh, they learn all the foundational stuff in the church realm. Then at some point, they might come in contact with the supernatural, and they realize there's more than just the church realm. Now, people who live in just the church realm, they can live there sometimes for decades or their entire life. Whew. That can be exhausting. <laughs> but if you switch over to the supernatural realm, there's a transition period. So what I've found in my observation, so I don't have numbers or statistics for you, but what I've seen from observation is that for every 10 years that you stayed in the church realm with no supernatural, it will take you about a year to a year and a half in the supernatural realm to adjust. What this means is that people who get called flaky or church hoppers or conference junkies are actually just adjusting from the church realm to the supernatural realm. They're actually just, we need to have more grace for them because they're going through a transition from dead, dry, dried out wineskin mindset to the supernatural is real. And they show up at every prophecy conference, every healing conference, everything that they can for four or five years. After four or five years, it settles into them. I can hear from God. I can heal the sick. I got this. It's in me. I get it. I get it. I get it. And then they settle down. They find somewhere to put roots down. And some churches just stay in the supernatural realm forever. Some will stay in the church realm forever. And if you find a church that stays in just the supernatural realm forever, there are signs. You'll be worshiping. Suddenly a flag goes by your face. <laughs> you hear the jingle of a tambourine to your left. Someone hits you with a shofar and some oil gets thrown on you. <laughs> then you know where you are. You are in a supernatural church. And there's certain emphasis in that type of church. And that's, that's great. There's people who need to move from here to here. 
And sometimes they hear about it through watching a Patricia King video or a YouTube video or a Sid Roth or something, and so it wakes you up to this realm. But eventually something settles and says, it's, it's not just about this supernatural thing. I'm supposed to actually take it outside the church. Ah, now you move to the next realm. This is the kingdom. The kingdom realm is not going to keep the supernatural caged up in a church. The kingdom realm is where you start to hear about Lance Wall now and the seven mountains concept. You start hearing about influencing society and culture, that the supernatural is not supposed to be just kept in church, but that we should be uh, healing people in our workplace, that we should be impacting uh, the political realm, the education realm, the arts, the media, all of that. So the kingdom now takes the supernatural outside the church in a whole new way. Those are the first four. The fifth realm is the new covenant realm. Now, this new covenant realm is really where new identity begins to settle in, and not only new identity, but also how God sees you. The observation that I've come to recognize is that there are people who can move all the way from the world to the church to the supernatural to the kingdom. Now they're a kingdom ambassador. They're going out representing the kingdom, representing the king as an ambassador, but they do not know how the king feels about them. Call them kingdom orphans, and we have millions of them. Kingdom orphans. That's because... Covenant defines relationship. Covenant defines relationship. Ralph, can you say that's good one more time? All right, I'll talk to Ralph. Covenant defines relationship. So if covenant defines relationship, until you get to the covenant place, you're in the kingdom place, you don't know how does he feel about me today. And we get into, well, there are, there are some people saying, well, God is good. Yes, he is good. God is always in a good mood. Okay, but he also defines what good is. And if I read the scripture, I could get confused by what good looks like, because on some days, good looks like opening the earth and swallowing people. <laughs> so I might be having a hard time with God is good all the time. There's something missing in the what he didn't do this for me and I'm missing out on that and he's maybe he's angry at me today and maybe you know and we just move all around in our feelings of how does he actually feel about me until we get to covenant that actually locks in this is how he feels about you So when I say that we're an epicenter of reformation, each one of these has churches that people look to as sort of flagship churches. In the, in the church realm, a flagship church would be something like Willow Creek or Saddleback, uh, some of those really big ones, uh, whatever uh, Joel Osteen's church is called or uh, some of those, those really big ones that are really good for moving people from the world realm to the church realm. And those are flagship churches for that. And you, you move over to the supernatural realm, and there are churches that are, that's what they do, and they do it really well, and that's their thing. Revival, glory, woo-woo, you know, if you want to get a tambourine on your face, this is where you go. That's where the party is all the time. If you want to go to a kingdom church, a good example there, of course, is Bethel. Bethel's probably the best example I know of that's well-known is as a kingdom epicenter church. 
what we have is that we're pioneering the very edge of this new covenant realm, and you might not realize that you're sitting in an epicenter of that reformation for the new covenant realm. That's where we are right now. Um, we have a fun handout I got together for you. I know we're doing hands out, handouts a lot this, uh, this month. That's great. So if we can pass those around. What I have here are the 10 pillars of Better Covenant Theology, the 10 pillars of BCT. Now, I want you to get a chance to take a look at these, and there's, there's scripture references where you can do a little homework if you'd love to. Um, some of you other Bible nerds are going to go home and have a good time with this. But uh, what we have in these 10 pillars is kind of, it's kind of our 10 points of this Reformation. Are you guys still able to hear me? All right, cool. So Martin Luther, he nails up 95. Now 95 is a lot. I know you probably don't have them all memorized. 95 is a lot. What we have here are 10 big pillars of this new covenant reformation that we are in the core of here. And so uh, I want you to have an a ability to fold this up, keep it with you, put it in your Bible, um, get it into your brain and thinking because it's actually impacting us more than you realize. It's actually in the structure, in the framing, in the walls of what we're doing more than you may realize. Um, we've been hearing more recently a lot about the fivefold, right? We've been talking about that again. And some people say, oh, we already did the fivefold movement in the 70s, in the 80s, and not just here, but I hear this in the body of Christ. When I talk about fivefold ministry, I get two responses, either scared or bored. <laughs> Bored? Eh, I've heard it all already. Who are you to talk about this? You're too young. You weren't burned by the shepherding movement like me. And so you get bored. Or you get scared because it's like, oh no, here we go again. We went through this in the 70s. It was terrible. And now we got to do this again. So those are the two reactions I usually get. The difference is that the fivefold movement that the Lord is releasing now is going to carry the reformation that we're about to read about. That's the point. They're to equip. They're to adjust the bones. They're to get everything aligned and moving correctly. Well, here's what needs to be adjusted, and here's what we're going to look at. So we'll just go through these. Some of these might feel like, oh, yeah, I totally knew that. But you might not realize the implication and how some churches who don't hold this, how different they really are. So number one, Jesus' birth fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there are many people who hold out the idea that Abraham has something separate. Now, if you actually ask the question, what, do, what does he have that we don't have in Christ? I've never gotten an answer to that question. But if you keep the two separate, you end up with a problem. The problem is a theology called dual covenant theology that says people can be saved outside of Jesus. Hmm. There are seminaries that actually teach dual covenant theology that Jewish people don't need to hear the gospel because they have the Abrahamic covenant. Famous ministers that I can name that you would know that teach Jewish people don't need Jesus as the Messiah because they have their own covenant with God. So point number one is a big deal. 
Number two, Jesus' death created the new covenant. There are people who hold out the idea that Jesus gave a new covenant to the Gentile church, and after he raptures us out of the way, then he'll come back for his Jewish people for a thousand years on the earth and have his real new covenant with them. That we have sort of a pretend new covenant right now. That's another one that thankfully we don't hold here. Number three, the new covenant is between the Father, God, and the Son as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You may not realize this is a very unusual thought, and it might be stretching you right now as you're reading it. But many people believe, I have a covenant with God. God is my covenant partner. If I sin, I'm breaking my covenant with him. None of that is true. You don't have a covenant with God. Jesus, God the Son, made a covenant as the high priest representing all of humanity. The high priest represents. So he doesn't represent just the nation of Israel like Moses did. He comes as a human and represents all of humanity behind him. And he comes to the Father God, and the, the two of them make the new covenant together. And then there's an Ark of the Covenant, and their Ark of the Covenant is actually in the temple of God. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 11. It says the temple was opened and was revealed, an Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God in heaven. So God, he has his Ark of his new covenant up in heaven where you can't mess with it. The really good news about this is that the new covenant is actually happening inside the Trinity, and you can't screw it up. That's very good news. You can't break it. You can't mess it up. You can't change it. It's inside. That's why God becomes incarnate to stand on both sides and make a deal inside the Godhead. And how do you get any access to it? By marriage. You come into Christ and receive what he has received. You marry into it. The two become one and you get the inheritance that he has received. So it really puts you in a nice, safe place where you can't mess it up. Number four, Jesus' ascension and enthronement in heaven fulfill the Davidic kingdom promises. Peter, this is his first sermon of salvation on the day of Pentecost. Most of us, we hear the story as a whole bunch of people show up, then there's wind, there's fire, and 3,000 people get saved. They hear tongues for the first time, and 3,000 people get saved. We forget the actual sermon that Peter lays out for them. And the sermon message he lays out is essentially, and you can read it in Acts 2, uh, is that Jesus is the son that God had promised to David that would sit on an eternal throne. Jesus is that son that was promised to David. And because he's that son, and you killed him, and then he came back to life, now he's seated on an eternal throne of David. Now, this is different than in some churches, which are really strong on the concept that Jesus will someday land in Jerusalem, and when he does, and he puts his, his throne down, that he'll sit on an eternal throne of David for a thousand years. Did you hear the contradiction there? And that that someday will be the fulfillment. Even though Peter says, this is the fulfillment. 
And the people are pierced to the heart, and 3,000 get saved. That's the first message of salvation, and for many of us, we theologically don't even believe it's happened yet. Number five, the destruction of 70 AD, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century, removed the old covenant permanently and fulfilled Hebrews 8.13. Hebrews 8.13 says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the old one obsolete and outdated, and what is obsolete will soon fade away. So by the time they're writing the book of Hebrews, which is about 35 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he says the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete. Yay, we understand that. That's good news. But what is obsolete, which is the old covenant, will soon pass away. Many of us have been taught new covenant established at the cross. Yay, good news. Old covenant must have been completely annihilated at the cross. No, it was made obsolete and outdated. But in the background of the entire New Testament, the old covenant system with the priests, the Pharisees, the temple system, all of that was persecuting the early new covenant church people. The two were both in existence and the old was fading away. If you think of it this way, King Saul becomes king, he's anointed, he's going to be king, yay! And the first, within the first year, maybe the first month, he gets disowned as the king of Israel. According to Acts chapter 7, he was the king for 40 years. So for 40 years, he's the king, even though God has rejected him as king in his first year. During his same first year, David gets anointed to be the future king of Israel. So David is rising to take his place, and Saul is declining. The new covenant was established at the cross and began to rise as the old covenant was made obsolete and began to fade away. Okay. So that brings us to point six, which you should understand now. Between the cross and 70 AD existed a 40-year covenant transition slash war for the early church. There's what I was just talking about. During the transition period, number seven, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant coexisted. Again, similar point. Number eight, the end of the age and the last days were first century references to the last days of the Old Covenant and the end of the Old Covenant age. This is one of the reasons that you never hear negativity about we're in the last days or it's the end of the world or it's an election season. You just don't hear those things from New Hope. And why? It's not because we ignore it, because there are churches that they just choose, let's never talk about it, it's too confusing, let's ignore it. We're not an ignore-it church. We have a position that is different than a lot of other churches. When, when John writes in 1 John, it is the last hour. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. When James writes in James 5 and he says, it's near the end, it's standing right at the door. That's 2,000 years ago. When 
we talk about the last days, we have injected last days of planet Earth, last days of humanity, last days of human history. That is not a concept in the Jewish mind 2,000 years ago. They do not think like that. That is not in there because when you read the Old Testament, it talks about the, uh, the way that the Lord has created a never-ending earth, that he is the owner of the earth. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth that's about to be destroyed. No, he's going to give you an inheritance, right? So if you are going to get an inheritance, it's good news that it's not about to be destroyed. We have injected all of this paranoid modern thinking into the theology of the Bible that was not there and was not a part of church history until about 200 years ago in the 1830s when it was invented. So before that, the concept of church history and of the scripture itself is that last days is the end of the old covenant age. It's the last days of the temple system. It's the last days of the priesthood. It's the last days that we have to go to that corrupt system over there and deal with those corrupt people that Jesus knocked over their tables and kicked their animals out. They are messed up. They're corrupt. Do you understand? That he himself attacked twice in the same way. So we're at the end of that. That's going to be left behind. Yay, something's being left behind. So that, when we see last days or end of the age, when we read that, what we're seeing is a different picture than what you hear from a lot of other platforms. That's why you don't hear fear from here. That's why you hear hope, you hear optimism, you hear thinking long-term, building long-term, kingdom advancing. We think with a different model. Number nine, no application of the mosaic slash kinship uh, vassal covenants. Now, that's a little more detail than you may know because I'm pulling this out of like almost near the end of my book. So uh, you, can, you can do some research on that. None of them remain for application. The feasts, the Sabbath, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws are done away with. That is really good news because there are whole movements and whole churches that are trying to drag this stuff back in. I am still waiting. I think we're pretty close to the day where there's going to be some churches actually trying to reinstitute animal sacrifice because there's so much of the old that's being dragged into the new covenant. And it's so much, it's, the weirdness is off the charts. That's number nine. Number 10, the law of the new covenant is love one another as I have loved you. This one is impacting you more than you may realize because we don't operate under a set of rules and legalism here. This, the, one of the biggest words you hear people talk about, whether it's New Hope or Welton Academy, is freedom. What does the freedom come from? Freedom comes from love. Inside of, of legalism and, and rules and rigidity, you have control. Inside of love, you see freedom operate. So that's what you're feeling, this freedom, but it's actually rooted in a love that says, I, I don't have some, every time you do something wrong, I have some verse to hold over your head. I'm going to hammer you with something. And in some other systems, uh, other covenant theology type of systems, what gets held over people's head is, is a cherry-picking their way through the Old Testament. 
Don't you know that somewhere in Leviticus it says that you can't have a tattoo? Don't you know that somewhere in Leviticus you can't have a piercing? Don't you know that you shouldn't wear two different types of fabric together? You know, that polyester is offending God. <laughs> and the, the rules and the manipulations and the legalism that people operate in is so heavy. Now, some of it we may justify in our own kind of ways. Well, you know, some people in church can, can drink alcohol, but then if you're in a leadership position, you might cause somebody to stumble and blah, 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 blah. And we deal with all of our American cultural legalism that we don't even recognize what's happening. But when you read the New Testament, Paul is saying, uh, you know that meat that's offered to demons at the pagan temples? You can eat it if you thank God for it. But if you're around a weak-minded Christian you might cause them to stumble. So let's not cause them to stumble until they grow up and become mature. But for you, you can receive everything with thanksgiving. All right. Who wants to meet me at Roarbox? Um, that <laughs> wasn't in my notes. Hmm, 1201. All right, we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Who can give me five minutes? Five, 10, 15. <laughs> Some of you raise your hands twice. I appreciate it. Seriously, those 10 points that you just read are revolutionary, and they hammer to death so many sacred cows. I would get crucified for reading that list at some places. That'll put you on internet watch lists. That list right there will get you in trouble. But it's, the, it's a structure of thinking, and it's a theology that's been embraced by the leadership here. When I would teach and we would film the classes here, Ralph would sit in that chair, and you would hear him on the recordings. I think on our first class, Disrupting Culture, he's opening a bag of Lay's potato chips <laughs> on the front row. <laughs> I'm, I'm up here trying to draw my whiteboard, and I hear, it's <laughs> like, Ralph, we're filming. Can you just stop with the chips? <laughs> oh, sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> I, lo I love that, though, because this shows that the leadership is involved. This, I mean, Beth has sat in every class. Uh, the Paulies have been engaged. The, I, I could go, I could do a mental list with you, and most every leader that's been here has been engaged and involved. And it's, it's that uh, embracing of what is happening that is, is causing this to be a seedbed of what New Covenant uh, life looks like. We're actually seeing it pop up. We're seeing sprout. We're seeing things grow up through the surface, and we're going, okay, this is working. And you might not even know what's been planted here. You're showing up now and going, wow, this is a cool farm. This is really neat. Well, let me tell you what this weird seed is that we planted that you're not seeing in other places. So that's what I wanted to share with you. Um, I, I really, I will, I will be nice to the nursery workers, but I will <laughs> cover this uh, one other thought just, just to give you a picture. So a lot of this covenant teaching came out because I, I took uh, about a year and a half and I read all 60 books on covenant, the major 60 books that are written on covenant, and working on my doctorate. And so what that boiled down to is really there's 
uh, two or three major systems of theology that exist. And I would say that, that uh, 98%, 98%, this is my made-up number, of the books I read fall into two categories, covenant theology and dispensational theology. What you have with these two is the majority thought. Now, covenant theology is this concept that there's not much of a wall between the Old and New Testament. So we can drag lots of the old into the new. You can kind of feel that at some churches where a lot of old is dragged into the new. Um, this violates a lot of scripture in the new because Paul says, what do we do with the old covenant, which is Hagar, versus the new covenant, which is Sarah? He says, kick out that slave woman. She will never share in the inheritance with the free woman. They don't coexist. They don't cohabitate. You're not married to two covenant women one is gone. You kick her out. You live in the new covenant. That's good news. Wow. But for covenant theology, they try to drag that corpse into the life of the new covenant. That's a problem. And that's, that came from uh, the 1200s. Thomas Aquinas, he really created that concept. Over here, the 1800s, you have dispensationalism. I think the best picture for this, I heard a preacher one time say, what is the most important page in the Bible? And after an odd silence, he said... The blank piece of paper between the Old and New Testament. <laughs> the concept in that thinking is that the Old and the New are at war with each other. It's law versus grace, which is not true because it's actually law and faith. Law and grace are never contrasted in Scripture. It's law versus faith. So law and faith are the two that are in contrast. And it's not Old Testament versus New Testament. It's Old Covenant versus new covenant. And there's a big difference there because we, we cannot simplify, simplify it down to just one blank piece of paper dividing the two because the old covenant can, continued to linger until Jerusalem was destroyed. The old covenant did not disappear in Matthew 1.1. Let that sink in. The Old Covenant did not disappear in Matthew 1.1, and it also didn't even disappear when the cross happened. It was made obsolete, but it didn't disappear yet. So we have these two main options. That's what 98% of Protestant Christians have to decide between. Do we keep around a whole bunch of the old and drag corpses around with us, or do we have such an anti-Old Testament that we don't even know how to explain it and we create 120 million atheists in the world? Because most atheists grew up in church. They had really good questions about the Old Testament. They read Deuteronomy and Leviticus and said, uh, what? <laughs> and we said, I don't know. And then they got offended and they leave and they say, you guys are crazy. You think that that is a good loving father? He's a psychopath. And because we don't have good answers, we just go, oh, that's just law, and thank God we live in the age of grace, where he kills Ananias and Sapphira, and King Herod gets eaten by worms, and the book of Revelation happens, <laughs> the age of grace. And so dispensationalism has big freaking problems, too. Those are what most churches have to choose between. Now, there's a third option, which I just think is hysterical, that I will share with you briefly, very briefly. New Covenant Theology, NCT, says 
You can't take the old, because it's, it's wrong. You can't take that one and drag it into the new. So what we do is we go through the New Testament, and we look for New Testament rules. The Old Testament had 613 laws, so we jump into the New Testament, and we look for our New Covenant rules, and there's 1,050 that they have found. The Old Testament has 613. The New Testament has 1,050. It's less than 25% of the paper in your Bible, but it has 1,050 because Paul says, don't be angry, don't have malice, don't have rage, don't have, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and you can start adding this up and create giant lists. And because we're in the age of grace, he has given you the grace to keep all these extra laws according to New Covenant theology. So those are your three options. 98% are in the first two categories, 1.9% are in the New Covenant theology, and 0.0000001 is in Better Covenant theology, which is the 10 points I just laid out for you on the piece of paper in front of you. BCT is a fourth concept, and the basic underlying theme is that we approach the scripture not just chopping it into big chunks, but approaching it progressively looking at how the covenants unfolded. And we see this book simply as the, the written record of God's covenant journey with mankind. The written record of God's covenant journey with mankind. That's what this book is. We love it, we study it, we go after it. And those 10 pillars are a huge framework to understanding a lot that's going on behind the thinking and behind the scenes here at New Hope. And uh, thank you for your time and attention. Uh, bless you guys. We really hope you enjoyed this week's message. Please join us again sometime and be sure to check out our exciting resources at newhope.com.